Go to Second Kings six with me, guys. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I um I have a 35 minute sermon here, and I don't have 35 minutes, and I won't do that to you. I I I'm I am going to read you the text. I'm going to read you the story, and then I'm going to make one of the points that I wanted to make if I had preached my sermon. I'll try to give you a quick rundown of the others, but uh, I I so relax. I uh, respect you enough to not abuse your time and your schedule. So we'll, we'll, we'll stay on schedule. But what we really need to hear is one the things that God has to say. And so let me read you that. The story that is under review this morning is a story that begins in verse 24 of chapter 6. It doesn't end until the end of chapter 7. It's a chapter and a half long. I'm not going to read you all of it. I mean, I didn't plan on doing that had I all the time I wanted, but... Um, I'm, I'm going to give you the essential parts. So you stay with me as we start in chapter 6 at verse 24. Here we go. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman, she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So he boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard these words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me. And more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel of two sea, and, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the king of the Hittites, and the king of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, They went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, 
Come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household, and the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, When they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get them, get into the city. And one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. Behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Um, and then over, it, um, yes, verse, now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said, when the king came down to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Guys, in that story, I was going to point out basically two two halves of the story. There's the dark half, there's the dark side of the story, and then there's the bright side of the story. The dark side of the story can be seen all throughout the story. For instance, the the two kings, Ben-Hadad, the king of Samaria, excuse me, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and Jehoram, the king of Israel. Both of these men um, blame Elisha, blame God, in essence, because of Elisha, for their problems. Both of them hire armies to try and, and uh, capture him so that they can kill him. Um, <clears throat> and yet the, the mind-boggling part of this is that both of these kings had received favors from God through the hand and mouth of Elisha. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> so here's a, here's, a, here's a man like... Uh, Naaman, do you remember chapter 5? The, the number one a king, a general in the Syrian army was healed of leprosy. And then Jehoram had watched uh, numerous interventions on the part of God to deliver them from his enemies. And this is how they pay him. How do they pay him? Well, let's kill him. <laughs> is that not, you know, when, when one of the most frustrating things as a parent, at least for me, was when when I would try to do something really, really nice for my kids and they would... They would turn on me. You know, you plan a trip to um, to Disneyland and and they complain about whatever. It was just infuriating because of the ingratitude. But these two kings had received deliverances at the hand of Elisha, at the hand of God through the hand of Elisha, and they wanted to kill him. But then, of course, that episode of uh, this famine-induced uh, or this siege-induced famine. I mean, where they're buying a donkey head for 60, 80 shekels of silver. And by the way, that dove's dung, we're going to consider that not food, but uh, uh, something to light the fire. That I can't imagine either. But anyway, but that, that weren't bad enough. They eat a, a child. And um, and you notice the complaint to the king on the part of the woman is, is not that they ate her son. The complaint is we can't eat another one. Where's the other one? I want to eat him too, you know? Um... That's pretty dark, isn't it? I, I gotta read you this quote. Um, uh, this, here's a quote. 
When there are two conflicting versions of a story, the wise course is to believe the one in which people appear at their worst. You know who said that? Rudy Giuliani said that when he was the district attorney, U.S. attorney in New York. That must have been 30 years ago. When, when, when there are two conflicting versions of the story, the wise course is to believe the one in which people appear at their worst. Do you mean to tell me that the same barbarism that I see in this story lies in my heart? And then, of course, that captain, that guy in, in chapter 7, verse 1, or actually it's verse 2, when the captain says, Oh, no, I mean, nobody could ever do that. <laughs> that's, that's foolishness. He reminds me of um, the 21st century scoffer who looks at what the Christian believes and says, ha, 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 I mean, you can't, you don't believe that, do you? I mean, what evidence do you have for your position, Mr. Scarfer? Well, none. And your position is that you were born as an accident and you will die in, in, uh, in meaninglessness. Is that right? And what evidence do you give me for that position? Well, I don't have any evidence. But you prefer that to the, to the message of, of meaning and hope and redemption and forgiveness? And, and what evidence do you give me to reject what I believe? All you've got for me is that sneer? That, you don't believe that, do you? The real point, ladies and gentlemen, is simply this. One of the things that this story shows you is the hardness, the depravity of the human heart outside of Jesus Christ. Ingratitude, cannibalism. Contempt, sneer. Those are those are all characteristics, folks. Maybe not the <laughs> characteristics of the depravity of the human heart. Your heart, outside of Jesus Christ. Your heart, my heart. The potential for wickedness. In fact, if you have two conflicting versions of the same story. You ought to believe the one that shows man it is worst. <laughs> Why? Because outside of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, our hearts spew violence. But then the other half of the story that I wanted you to see is the, uh, is the bright side. Um, two quick things. First of all, you see it in Elisha. Um, you know, interestingly enough, had Jehoram, Jehoram was the king of Israel, had Jehoram been able to accomplish his, his goals, he would have extinguished all hope for the city of Samaria. That is, he wanted to kill the one who was going to announce that God was going to deliver. In, in, in a large, in a very real sense, guys, the greatest enemy that I have is my, that is, if I, if I'm left to my own, I will destroy myself. If God leaves me to myself, I will destroy me. You know, you watch folks who are trying to, to who are who are saying that they love their freedom, they love their autonomy. This is yay, and they're they're destroying themselves. They are consumed, and they're consuming. No one ever stops and says, well, maybe the issue is my sin. Maybe the issue is that we need to repent and embrace God. Nobody ever does that. No, let's just, let's just shoot the ones who've got a message of hope. 
But as you know, the real heroes of this story are four lepers. The, 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 the saviors of the city are four men who were not even allowed to enter that city. They were, they were banned by Jewish law from ever entering the city, and they become the saviors. The, the outcasts, the outsiders become the announcers of good news, while the insider, the proud, contemptuous insider gets trampled at God's deliverance. Oh, he sees it, but he doesn't get to enjoy it. You know, the captain that's standing, well, I could never have. Oh, he got, he gets to see the deliverance, but he never gets to enjoy it. You know, ladies and gentlemen, one day when, when God fulfills all of his, all of his promises in Christ to us, the skeptic will see it, but he'll get to taste none of it. The, the lepers go out to f- hopefully find mercy. They say that in verse 4. If they let us live. You know, we're dead here. But if they let us live. And so they go out. And they find mercy. But it's not from the Syrians. The mercy they get is from God. And back in Samaria, the city... People are boiling their sons. And the deliverance has already been accomplished. It's right out there. Go get it. My friends, do you know what the Christian message is? What the the Christian gospel is this. God has been reconciled. That Jesus Christ has paid everything that's necessary for me and you to be reconciled. Go get it. All of the deliverance that you need and desire is available to you. Go get it. It's out there. The people who go are the people who know they're starving. But some of you come here this morning gorged on your own self-accomplishment. You come gorged with your own self-righteousness. And so I speak to you about all this Jesus stuff. And you say, who needs him? Because basically I'm a good person. Then you must not have heard the first part of this story. Because ladies and gentlemen, apart from Jesus Christ, you are depraved. Your heart is hard. And it spews stuff that Shouldn't be mentioned in mixed company. Remember the old um, Alfred Hitchcock movie? Well, I'm dating myself when you mention Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, that's the best I can do, you know, when you're, when you're my age. Um, maybe some of you don't even know Alfred Hitchcock, but Alfred Hitchcock uh, wrote all these suspense thrillers and, you know, um, that Tony Perkins. Anyway, um, one of his, his movies was about a set of glasses, a set of glasses, and uh, if you put the glasses on, it would allow you to peer into the recesses of the thoughts and the hearts and the mind of those you were looking at. And so when you put the glasses on, you could see what, what other people were really thinking. 
And so when they first, when the people first put them on, they thought, mm, isn't, that, isn't that amusing? And then before the time, before they could get them off, they all went insane because they got a chance to look into the depravity of the human heart apart from Jesus Christ. Is there a deliverance available for somebody as wicked as I am? Yeah. It's out there. Go get it. One more thing and I'm done. There's a, there's a part of this story, um, I guess it's about verse 9, it's at the top of my page, but about verse 9, where the lepers say, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, what we're doing is not good. I mean, today is the day of good news, and, um, you know, the longer we play out here, the longer we delay, the more people back in the city of Samaria are going to die. I mean, today is a day of good news, and so we've got to go announce the good news because God has provided, provided all of this bounty, and we're not supposed to, the, the intent of his provision is not for us to keep it, but to share it. So send somebody back there and tell those people who are perishing about the good news of God's deliverance out here because today, today, my friend, it's a day of good news. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, it's a, it's a still a day when the doors of grace are wide open. John Stott, one of my, he was an Anglican, one of my heroes. John Stott wrote a book entitled "Our Guilty Silence." Ladies and gentlemen, for those lepers to remain silent made them guilty. I mean, it's like having the cure for cancer and not telling anybody. That's not only immoral, it's illegal. But the intent of the good news, the intent of the deliverance, was so that the news might be shared with those who are perishing. For the Christian church to remain silent, renders us guilty. Ours is not simply a silence. It's a guilty silence. Somebody told me this story, and I don't know who it was. I want to say it was Johnny Coggin that told me this story, but I can't remember. It was recently. But, and I might have some of the details wrong, but you'll get the point. It was about a, a pastor in Dublin, Ireland, who um, decided that he was going to he was going to go down the street to the pub and he was going to start trying to reach some of those guys in the pub. And so, uh, sure enough, he goes down the street and got, walks into the pub and sits at the bar and, and orders something to drink, um, like a good Irishman. And, and, and sitting next to him, of course, was a guy that was half drunk. So he begins to talk to him about, uh, uh, the provisions of God in Christ Jesus and that that sin can be forgiven and that, that uh, heaven can be stormed and heaven is yours and on and on and on he went. And the, and the drunk listened. When he was finished, the drunk looked at him and said, um, you know what, preacher? I don't think you believe what you've been telling me. He said, well, of course I believe. Well, no, I don't think you, I don't think you really believe what you've just been telling me. 
Well, why would you say something like that? And he said, because if you believed it, you'd have been down here long before now. There's a hymn that we used to sing. It goes like this. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure we're using the one that we've got. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, use your word to adjust what we consider to be true and right and good, that our, that our minds might be held captive to the thoughts and the truths outlined in your word, that we might view life through a set of glasses that have been built by scriptural truth, and that all that we hold dear will be as a result of seeing that you've said it, and that you've accomplished it in Christ. Lord, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met this Savior of ours, might they begin to see that apart from him, they are starving, but that the deliverance is available, completed, offered, free, and that you would draw them irresistibly to the same place that you've drawn so many of us, to that precious, bleeding side of Jesus Christ. Do that, Father, not because, not because we deserve anything from you, but because you have promised that you loved the world and that you've given your Son so that any who believe on him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Do that, do that for some today, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name.